Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Everybody, welcome back to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Emily Peterson. This is episode six. We are broadcasting to you on heritageradionetwork.org, live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. On this week's show, I'm going to follow up on your knife questions from last week, and then we're going to get on the line a mushroom doctor, a macologist from the New York Botanical Garden who's going to talk to me about the fungus sprouting in my lawn and in the tree pits all over New York City and probably around the, I guess, this uh, latitude all over the country. Um, And he's going to help us work out whether or not it's a good idea to try to harvest and eat some of them. Um, this weekend, we, my family and I were supposed to be camping with friends. Uh, I mentioned last week that I was irritated that we, we weren't going to get to go. And we did not, in fact, get to go because the government shut down closed to the National Park on Sandy Hook in New Jersey. Um, so instead, we went to the aquarium in Norwalk, Connecticut, and it was beautiful. And if you were wondering where all the little kids are on Saturday mornings, it's at the aquarium. We fit right in. Um, we went with a friend who is also a former chef, and we were joking that in every exhibit, we were like, ooh, striped bass, or mmm, grouper, look at that, look, look at the groupers swimming by, that's delicious, or oh, lobsters, and realized that we were coming to this exhibit of living fish the way other people are approaching like the seafood counter at Whole Foods. And I only got one sideways glance from someone when I said, oh, look, a blue lobster, it's too bad they turn red when you cook them. <laughs> she sort of like shuffled her kid away. Um, I also, we went to, uh, a couple of months ago, I went to a, an Asian market where they were, they'll pull a fish out of the tank and kill it for you live. And this woman was standing there with her friend who ordered a fish as I was walking by with my kid and the guy behind the counter whacked the fish's head off and she's like, oh, that poor little baby had to witness that. And I looked at her like, oh, no, no, no. This baby's he's going to witness lots of fish getting their heads cut off in our kitchen. It's totally fine. And she was aghast, but kind of laughed uncomfortably. And we all moved on. So later in the weekend, when we uh, got back home, we picked the very last of our red hot peppers that were hanging on the plants. You may remember the hot peppers that I grew back from, I believe it was episode two, where I talked about whether or not you can unhot a hot pepper. There was still some clinging on for life onto the plants. And then uh, we also harvested the last tomatillos that were still growing on these totally unruly plants that were crawling out of their bed in every direction and then tore the plants out and threw them into the chicken pen. And when I say the last of the red peppers and the last of the tomatillos, it, it creates this like, pastoral picture that every couple of days I go out there and I pick some red peppers and I make a salsa. I pick some, you know, I go out to my veggie patch with my woven basket and get some tomatillos and just grill them on a whim for salsa. And it's all, you know, this, this uh, imaginary picture that I paint for myself and probably for you too uh, is very pastoral, but that's not a, at all what happened this year. Instead, it went something like this. The seed catalogs come in February when 
sea catalogs do in the depths of snow. And everyone's so excited because it's February and you can start smelling potting soil that are on the pages of these like sort of misty printed vegetable ink, all natural papers, the heirloom seed catalogs. And I start with the vision, this pastoral idea that I'm going to grill tomatillos in the summertime and I'm going to be wearing like a light white dress in the backyard. So I picked out and ordered 50 bucks worth of seeds with my husband and we started them under a grow light setup that's really easy. You just go to Home Depot and you buy the light and the the fluorescent light bulb and you don't even really need a full spectrum bulb a regular plain old fluorescent bulb works just fine and i started them and i tended them so gently and they started to sprout and it's cold and snowing and i'm nursing these things and realizing that i'm also was tending to a one two three four october a five month old at the same time in february so it was kind of a good project for me to keep the baby alive and also to keep the plants alive at the same time and also a little bit of a distraction to get me through the doldrums of winter. So then I potted each of my little seedlings up into a slightly larger pot when they were ready and then I labeled all my kales. I had this this extensive labeling system on little beautiful wooden skewers and I labeled all the peppers and in the end of February and in March it was nice enough where I could go outside and work in the garden. We put up a new deer fence and weeded and we weeded these thistles and the baby was perfectly content. I bought um, a string of Tibetan prayer flags. And when they were brand new, they were flor- like bright, bright fluorescent colors. And when there are no leaves on the trees, you can see them from the main street that we that sort of goes through the back of our property. And so I brought attention to a space that lots of people are used to ignoring on their commutes. But suddenly there's this like neon fluttery thing. So one day a guy drove by and I was in the garden working and he stopped to ask me. I got out of his car. He's like, so uh, what kind of mulch you use? And what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm just like telling him, like, oh, well, we compost. And, oh, yeah, you till? I'm like, no, we don't, we don't till anything. Cause that be, all rototilling does really is just spread the weed seeds around and make an even coating of weeds, whereas just harvest, just pulling the weeds keeps them all kind of in the place where they're trying to grow. So he's looking around and he's kind of like, shuts his chin out at the prayer flags and he says those work and honestly i was like a little surprised that this guy from new jersey this commuter knew what they were at all and i was like well so far yeah i mean everyone's happy and healthy and i feel pretty prosperous and he looked at me like i was like you know this total weirdo hippie which i am and he said no i uh i meant for the birds (laughs) i was like oh birds (laughs) no no not at all the birds don't care they fly right past it they don't care at all So the cool, cold winter gave way to the spring, and for a long while, James, my kid, was totally content to sleep in an hour in a stretch in the stroller in his little baby carrier, and I was living the life. Like, I had my kid, and our garden looked exactly the way I'd imagined it in February, and now we're getting, like, into March and April, and it was just like I saw it in my mind's eye with my prayer flags and my beehives. So... I'm battling these like dastardly thistles and something that we've been calling creeping Charlie that they're these awful, awful pervasive weeds. But I felt like we were kind of staying ahead of them and it was lovely and warm. Are you, are you getting the idea? Are you getting the picture that I'm painting? Then it got hot, like stupid, stupid, really hot. And being in a vegetable garden, there's no shade. Vegetables love full sun. And since the sun was getting higher and higher up in the sky, I couldn't and didn't want to bring my kiddo out there, which is a pretty you know, convenient coincidence, as I didn't want to be out there either pulling weeds in 104 degrees. You remember when it was back a couple months ago when it was 104? So I stopped doing anything. 
I didn't do anything. And luckily, I share the garden and the responsibilities with my in-laws, and they were way better about sweating it out out there. They wear sweatpants and everything. They're really cute. And they jump in the pool periodically in July and August, and they are way better about weeding in the hot weather than I was, which wasn't hard to do because I wasn't good about it at all. And the weeds took over. I mean, it's like a jungle out there. Even Bob's tomatoes, my father-in-law, whom we call the tomato doctor, I have tried every single hippie weed barrier out there, mulch and newspapers and all of these like green alternative products promising miracles and nope. I mean, they just take over and I didn't use any chemicals. It's one of the places where I draw the line. I have a no roundup rule. So I'd rather have it looking like a jungle and totally overtaken by weeds um, than have roundup sprayed. I have two beehives on the edge of the garden and a baby and a love of the planet and every time i get one too many mosquito bites i'm like that's it get the exterminator on the phone i'm ready to gas the lawn like i cannot take this and then i think of all the lightning bugs and the dragonflies and since science hasn't come far enough to gas just the mosquitoes i'm not ready to say goodbye to all of them i want the ladybugs and the dragonflies and the praying mantises to stick around and so i put up with the mosquitoes and i don't use roundup so i have to put up with the weeds You want to know what Bob used that worked on the tomatoes? Good old-fashioned black plastic. I hate it. I hate to admit it, but it's true. In fact, I think the weeds that would have taken up in his tomato beds like ran a few beds over and just like absorbed my asparagus and my bell peppers and my kohlrabi and my peas and everything but the tomatoes. I will say my basil... Uh, did really well, and the rainbow char did really well, and those two are actually still doing fantastic. And the hot peppers, even though I wasn't very good at harvesting them when it was super, super hot, I'm fairly certain that next summer when my kid can stand up, I will do better. And there are a couple of crops that I have in my garden, like kale and kohlrabi and a couple of other things that the frost will actually make them taste better. And I should go back. I skipped uh, something I wanted to mention, which... I grew peas from seed. And so you go out and you plant a pea, and it looks just like the pea that's on your dinner plate. And you put them in a row, and every couple of inches you stick a pea in. And I used a pencil, and then you cover it. And then I learned sort of quickly, like, oh, I should just dig a little trench and drop peas in and then bury the whole trench instead of using a pencil to dig every single hole. And the peas did really, really well. We had a lot of peas. And then we decided that we were going to pick the peas and can them, not can them, sorry, freeze them, put them up for the wintertime so that in February we could have peas. So one afternoon, I go out there with my husband and these two giant stainless steel bowls, the biggest ones we have, and we fill them with pea pods. And we're like, well, that's like, that's a lot of peas. Like, look at how many peas that that is. But we'll just like shell them. It's not a big deal. So we poured a couple of beers and we were sitting on the back porch shelling peas. And the first couple were like so easy. We're like, oh, this is so fun. And then like two hours have gone by and there, it seems like the, quantity of unshelled peas has not gone down and i think i'm going to write an essay about like the the seven stages of mourning as compared to the seven stages that you go through pea picking where in which i swore i was never growing peas again i hate peas i didn't even like peas why are we doing this and then by the end it took like four hours of time but we did get all of our peas harvested and they are down in the chest freezer and so for four hours of time to harvest them plus all the growing time plus the time to plant them plus the expense of purchasing the seeds in the first place we got two gallons of peas but that was totally worth it right so the basil did good the chard did good 
those are both still doing fantastic. The hot peppers were good. Next summer, I'm going to do way better when some, somebody can stand on his own. And that's the beauty of having a garden. You get to try it again and again and again. And there's always a next summer. And if you start talking to other gardeners, even really good professional ones, like this cat that we met at a community garden near us, you learn immediately that there's not really a such thing as a super successful gardener. Not on a small scale anyway, not that I've really found. Anyone, I mean, I don't know anyone who, when it's time to like, take the fence down and let the chickens in and eat as many of the weed seeds as you can convince them to eat, look back and say, yep, job well done. No room for improvement. Everything I did was totally perfect. There's always room for improvement. A new seed to try or a new philosophy, like not tilling or a new integrated pest management system, which is just fancy gardener speak for using one bug to eat other bugs, like incorporating ladybugs to eat your aphids. And it's beautiful. This like, and I think not an accidental allegory for real life. So the question was, is it worth it to grow your own food? Absolutely. Totally. And if you've listened this whole time thinking, hey, nice story, lady, but I live in a fourth floor walk up. Just pretend this whole story that I just told you was told to you by the person trying to sell you a share in their CSA. Or think of this story the next time you're standing at the farmer's market and you're like, you want how much for those tomatoes? And I do it too. I totally walk at the farmer's market where I'm like, holy smokes, $15 a pound for tomatoes. We should be selling our tomatoes. Someone out there is thinking about those tomatoes that you're holding in your hand all year. And you should pay them. And you should pay them generously for it because it's going to be the best tomato you have ever eaten. And if you do live in that fourth floor walk up and you do uh, have a sun, like I've lived in an apartment in a fourth floor walk up where I didn't even have a sunny window back in my back in my Brooklyn youth um, then you can get a little one light bulb grow light and it's super easy to grow your own basil and sometimes that's all you need is like one little plant that's just plugging along and you're doing the best you can if you're good at keeping something evenly watered basil is super super easy if you're not good at watering like you forget for a week or two weeks or three weeks cactuses are really easy I have cactuses that I don't know how they're still alive, but also rosemary. Rosemary grows in sort of drought conditions, clinging to the sides of rocky mountains. And so that's almost similar to the conditions in a Brooklyn apartment or Manhattan apartment or like an Indiana apartment. But if you do have some space, I would highly recommend planting some heirloom seeds because, yes, it is totally worth it. On the other hand, if you live in an apartment, I highly recommend getting a basil pot, too. A pot with a basil plant in it. Okay, your questions after the break. You are listening to Just Because by the California Honey Drops on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Just because you wish it was true. 
following is an actor reading an actual customer email from Heritage Foods USA. My family and I enjoyed the Heritage Turkey. It was far superior to the regular mass-produced turkeys in terms of flavor and texture. Absolutely delicious and worth the difference in price. We will never go back to the regular turkeys. It made our holidays more enjoyable. Thank you, Heritage Foods USA. Heritage Foods USA hopes you had a great holiday season. For more specials on pork, beef, and other meats, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com. It is holiday season coming up, isn't it? I've been telling people loosely to save the date for a holiday party. But before that, uh, a listener called in to ask me a question that I needed to call in an expert. So I am going to call Dr. Roy Holling at the New York Botanical Garden, who's going to an- help me answer a question. So let's see if this works. Here we go. Oh, there we go. Hello, this is Roy Holling. Hi, Dr. Holling. This is Emily calling from Sharp and Hot. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much time for taking some time to talk with me about this uh, listener question pertaining to mushrooms. Um, before I play his question, though, can you tell everyone who's listening your job title and a little bit about your background? Sure. I'm a research mycologist at the New York Botanical Garden. I've been here for not quite 30 years. Um, I've been studying mushrooms since oh, the mid-70s and uh, went on to get a Ph.D. And uh, now I work as a curator of mycology here at the Botanical Garden. So I called you as an expert because while I have cooked a lot of mushrooms in my time, I don't actually know all of the details for how one would go about foraging them. So I'm going to play this listener's question and then we can answer it, uh, or you can answer it, and I will also learn something. So here, oh. here's the question. Okay. Hi, Chef Emily. This is Doug from Rochester, New York. I have all these mushrooms growing in my lawn, and I was wondering uh, if there's any way to find out if they're edible. Thanks. Okay, so, Doctor, what say you? Can he eat the <laughs> mushrooms growing in his lawn? Well, it depends on how well he knows them. I mean, if you just you don't know anything about mushrooms and you go out foraging, it's, it, there's a possibility you're going to make yourself sick. Um, so you, you need to know what you're collecting and what you're going to eat. And... So for someone who's never, who's only see these mushrooms, where's like the first place they can start to find out, can, like how to identify, like there's one growing in um, my, right around my trash cans that looks a lot like uh, a portobello. It's brown and it's short and it's got a wide cap and a thick stem. So if it was me, wh- where would you direct me to, to find out whether or not I could ID that as a non-make-me-sick mushroom? You would need to consult somebody who knows what, they are, like me here at the Botanical Garden, or you need to get yourself educated as to what these, what, which ones you could eat and which ones you should stay away from. And there's, a way, there's a, another way to do that. There are local mushroom clubs in different places in the country. For example, here in the metropolitan New York area, there are four different clubs, and they take it upon themselves to educate themselves about what's good to eat and what's not good to eat and what to stay away from. And so anyone can just sort of call them or go to them with a sample or a photograph and say, I need your help? (laughs) (laughs) One could do that, um, but 
the problem is it's best to look at the the item in in your own hand i mean I, it's i have people call me on the telephone and try to describe something to me and there's absolutely no way i can recommend anything like i just did right <laughs> yeah exactly if you say well it's a portobello growing by my trash can well <laughs> gee whiz <laughs> i don't know if you know what portobellos are i assume you do because you probably you certainly will cook with them right um but it, that's one thing that i always that happens here in my office is i'll get a, a telephone call another thing that happens somebody will send me an email with a picture attached. Now, that's a little better, but it's still not foolproof. The foolproof way is to have the mushroom in your hand. And even if I had something in my hand, I wouldn't tell them straight away, go ahead and eat it. I would recommend to them to look in a book with that name of that mushroom and see what the book says. Personally, I don't recommend anything to anybody. And is it true that, um, like, chanterelles can't be cultivated? Like, there are types of culinary mushrooms that are found on restaurant menus this time of year often, and morels are in the spring that can't be commercially cultivated? That's, that's correct. Chanterelles is, is one of those that you can only forage for in, in the wild. Porcini is another one. And morels, they have been cultivated, um, but they're not marketed from a cultivated source. Um, truffles are another one that can't be cultivated, except if you do it in an orchard, in a truffle orchard. In that way, it's still wild. It's not, you know, controlled like portobellos or, or button mushrooms. Right. Um, do you eat wild mushrooms? I do eat them. I don't go out of my way to collect them. I <laughs> just... <laughs> Because I work on mushrooms every day, and if I'm out um, doing doing some work and I see something where, oh, here's some chanterelles or here's some porcinis or whatever, and if there's enough to make it worthwhile, then I'll, I'll collect them for the table. But I don't do it on purpose. Okay, so the upshot is if you have something growing in your lawn, the best way to identify it is to find one of the local mushroom groups, which I assume people can just Google mycology group near me or something like like wild mushroom foragers near me and they will uh be able to get you on the path of identifying your specimen that yeah you could do something like the new york mycological club or the new jersey mycological association the san francisco mycological club things like that there's usually in some you know uh metropolitan area it doesn't have to be as large as new york city or in san francisco but they're they're around so there are hope for people like my husband, who I, I told him that I think I might let him drive a motorcycle before I let him eat wild mushrooms, which he knows he's not driving any motorcycles anytime soon. So. <laughs> no, it's, it's safer to get good advice, you know, that you can trust and somebody who knows what they're talking about. Excellent. Dr. Holling, thank you so much for your expertise. I truly, truly appreciate your taking the time and talking to us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. All right. You have a great week. You too. Okay, folks, there you have it. This is another case for having a really good teacher and maybe get some field guidebooks to start with and compare some pictures and then look for a mentor in a mycological society near you. Um, I will not be eating the mushrooms in my lawn anytime soon. Doug, I hope that that was helpful for you in Rochester. 
Let's see. Last week, um, I talked about picking out good knives for your home kitchen, and Katie left me a message on Facebook saying that her parents, let me read this as a quote, my parents have a Japanese-style knife that they tried to sharpen with a regular stone, and now it's got a bunch of nicks cut out of the, or a lot of nicks out of the cutting edge. Can it be resuscitated? If so, how? Ah, the age-old sharpening dilemma. Here's a secret. I don't even sharpen my own knives. I keep my knives sharp, and I take really good care of them when they are sharp, but when they need a sharpening, I send them out to a professional. And if you take really good care of your knives, you should only have to sharpen them mm, once a quarter if you have a knife that you're using every day, or if you have a couple of knives that are in rotation a little bit less, like once every three or, uh, well, no, less than that, like every five or six months, right before the holidays or right after the holidays. Um, because the if you have a couple of knives, then the cutting burden is sort of spread out over several edges as opposed to relying on just one knife. But I want to break down your question part by part. So the first part of your question is, my parents have a Japanese-style knife. I'm guessing that you mean a santoku, which has a straight cutting blade where the blade meets the cutting board is straight as opposed to a curved blade of a French-style chef's knife. And a santoku is only sharpened on one side. So unlike a French blade that you sharpen, one, two, three, four on one side, flip it over, one, two, three, four on the other side. The Santoku gets only one side sharpened. Next, you mention a regular stone, a regular sharpening stone. I'm guessing you mean the kind that you buy in the black plastic case, and it's heavy and tan or brown, and you soak it in water overnight, and then you use it wet. It's actually called a whetstone before sliding the blade back and forth, or just forth, as we talked about with the Japanese knives on one side, as opposed to a grinding wheel, most... Most home people don't have a grinding wheel, but it is out there as an option for uh, sharpening your knives. The wheel spins and you just rotate, just pass the knife back and forth over the spinning wheel. And then the last part of your sentence is it's got a whole bunch of nicks in it. And I'm really curious about how that happened in the sharpening process. Like, did they slide the blade up the stone as though they were trying to plane a piece off of it and caught the edge? You don't have to answer that. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I am fascinated. Or maybe there were nicks in it that they were trying to sharpen out because it got kicked around in the dishwasher. Maybe. I don't know. But finally, can it be resuscitated? Totally. I use a company called Knife Spa, which is not a sponsor of the show, although after this I might call them up and ask them if they want to be. www.knifespa.com. And right on the front page of their website, they have something called a cutlery vacation. There's a lot of compelling reasons also why you should mail them your knives and i fully agree with all of them having done this several times there's instructions on how to wrap the knife and ship it to them and in a couple of days you get it back like it's been away in miami beach and now it's come back all bronzed and ready for work um there's also corin which is located in way downtown manhattan and they specialize in repairing and sharpening japanese knives they do do all types of non-serrated knives but they they specialize in uh, in Japanese style knives, you also wrap your knife in newspaper and mail it to them. And I know it's weird to mail knives. I'm really, really attached to mine. And to send it away, like to send away my first string in a box, leaving behind my second favorites is really hard. And also you're kind of like, how is that not illegal? But it's not. Um, and if you want to love your knives all over again, I highly, highly, highly recommend taking the time out of your cooking schedule and mailing them away and having them sharpened. Um, the other thing to do is once you get them back and they're sharp, take really, really good care of them. Don't put them in the dishwasher. The dishwasher won't hurt the blade unless it gets banged around against something else, which you can prevent if you put it on like the top rack and there's nothing else around it. 
Um, but more importantly, the handle, the wood that the handle is made out of, will start to deteriorate and eventually will completely fall apart. Um, the other thing to do is don't put your knives in a drawer, which is another place I suspect the Knicks may have come from. You can buy something called a knife guard, which is a piece of folded-in-half plastic that the blade flips slips right into. I keep mine magnetized on a bar on the wall, so they never touch anything ever except for the thing that they are going to cut. So, um, if you've got a question that you'd like answered on the air for the benefit of everyone else listening, you can call 862, I think I wrote down the phone number wrong, 862-242-8599 and leave your question on the voicemail. I should memorize that. You can also tweet me at Chef Emily P or find me on Facebook forward slash sharp and hot. Does anybody memorize uh, phone numbers anymore? I don't think so. Last week, I forgot to leave you with a question of the week. And as I was wrapping up, I was thinking, I'm definitely forgetting something. And I got off the air and, yep, totally didn't pose a question to you. So here's what I'll do. Um, The last question I posed was, what's the best thing you've ever eaten? And Sarah, I will remind you, said she had real, true, delicious butter. And uh, we got one other call in that I will play here. This is Emily. Hi, Chef Emily. This is Emily from Petoskey, Michigan. And the best thing I ever ate was raspberry jam that's my favorite bye so simple just simple raspberry jam okay next week's question i want to know what is your favorite cookbook and why i have so many cookbooks i have a whole bookcase that's just cookbooks so this is going to be a really hard question for me send me your answer tweet me at chef emily p find me on facebook forward slash sharp and hot and sharp until next week Thank you for listening. Keep playing with your knives. Keep playing with things that are sharp and hot. Cheers. Hey, Squeezy. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.